0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Frank Sinatra was the original pop star. Boyish good looks, a golden voice, acting talent, starlets on his arm and a swarm of paparazzi following his every move.
2: And stolen by me.
1: Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley and today on The History Listen the rollicking and rancorous tale of Old Blue Eye's tour Down Under.
3: You know, the shit really hit the fan and I I didn't really know what to do.
1: Those that I talked to about it just
4: said, what a pig.
0: Sinatra was God in a lot of places, but he was still in the grips of demons of all kinds.
1: James Fiver picks up the story of Frank Sinatra's fateful 1974 tour of Australia.
4: Part One, Overture and
1: Insecurities.
5: Frank Sinatra was one of the most successful, influential, and talented entertainers of the 20th century.
0: I never make any bones about saying that Sinatra was uh, the greatest interpretive musician of all time. James Kaplan, Frank
5: Sinatra's biographer.
3: Frank
0: Sinatra. His voice was an almost supernaturally great thing. It was a voice like
5: no other. Sinatra's divine talent, along with an ability to court and harness power at the highest levels, made him a global superstar.
0: His first Australian concert was in January of 55. Evening to you and hope that you're enjoying the performance. There was a second wonderful tour in March of 59.
2: We've been having a lot of fun here doing these shows.
0: He came back in November of 61.
2: I have fun when we come here, otherwise I really wouldn't come at all.
0: And then we get to July of 74, which did not go smoothly.
5: Frank Sinatra had retired publicly in 1971, but for a man who had lived his life in full view and was addicted to popularity, that didn't last long.
0: The withdrawal from the adulation was uh, a terrible thing. He played golf, he painted pictures, and he got bored. He was leaving being Frank Sinatra, which even in the late 60s was still a gigantic thing, and going into isolation, and, uh, and he hated it.
5: Early in 1974, Sinatra began planning his comeback, the Old Blue Eyes' Back tour, with dates around the world. You know, it was probably one of
3: the biggest things I, I'd ever done at that time and, and since,
5: frankly. It's like a royal tour, you know. Robert Raymond was an Australian concert producer. He'd worked with the likes of Elton John and Duke Ellington. Getting Sinatra to Australia was something of an entertainment coup, and it didn't take long for the tour to become front-page news.
3: Frank Sinatra has come out of retirement and will soon be visiting Australia They said to me, Sinatra doesn't talk to the press
6: And like him or not, he's going to be paid more for those performances than any other person in
3: Australian history So the media by then was already maniac in the way they were determined to get to him Reported half a million US dollars for five shows I actually, quite frankly, had never seen anything like it he'll be accorded the same status as visiting heads of state. Every newspaper. Frank Sinatra. Every radio station. Frank Sinatra. Every TV station. Frank Sinatra. Had been running on the hour. Frank Sinatra as the lead story. You almost talk as, him, as if he was some sort of god.
5: Ah, oh, no. It was at a complete frenzy. Frank Sinatra's personal life, political allegiances, and mafia connections had been regular news fodder for decades and by the time of his comeback, the disdain he held for the press was entrenched.
0: You could always get a story by provoking Sinatra, uh, by driving too close to his limousine, by getting in his face at a nightclub or a restaurant, and provoking an outburst uh, that you could then turn into instant copy. It was an old formula, but somehow with Sinatra it never got tired.
5: Sinatra was almost 60 when he embarked on his 1974 comeback tour, and he was facing a rapidly changing world around him.
0: Sinatra was insecure about his looks, about his physical powers, about his voice. He was fatter, he was jowly. He had even less hair than before. The toupees were more and more obvious all the time. He had begun as early as the 1970s to have problems with impotence. He didn't like his own physical transformation. He didn't like the transformation of the United States. His, uh, the Nixon administration was wobbling. He just didn't like the way the world was. It was the beginning of women's liberation in America. Women were speaking out more. Female reporters were emboldened uh, to speak out more. Sinatra didn't like any of it. He wasn't ever anything like a women's liberationist. And Sinatra, when he began to come back in the early 70s, spent an awful lot of time on stage saying awful things about female reporters.
5: An example of Sinatra's vicious misogynistic streak was demonstrated during an infamous encounter he had with Maxine Cheshire, a Washington Post gossip columnist.
0: She had written unkind things about him, and he was drunk in the lobby of a hotel in Washington. He saw Maxine Cheshire, and he went code red immediately. He flew into a rage. He started calling her a whore right to her face, took two dollars out of his pocket, stuffed it in her hand, and said, that's what you're worth. When he was drinking, he could say unfortunate things. And he was usually drinking.
5: The women's liberation movement that was irritating Sinatra in the US was also emerging in Australia. Women were fighting for equality at home and in the workplace, including in the newsroom.
4: We'd finally got equal pay. When I first joined the ABC, I was earning two thirds what the male trainees were earning.
5: Margot Marshall was a reporter for ABC Radio's AM and PM in the 1970s.
4: Jermaine Greer was, you know, someone that we really admired and, you know, Helen Reddy, I Am Woman, had come out and that's still one of my favourite songs. (laughs) We still had to fight against the hierarchy in terms of being told off or asking critical questions of politicians and that sort of thing. That's not a place for a woman. An executive producer used to say to me if he didn't like an interview, oh, why don't you go home and make jam roly polies for your husband? You know, the the sorts of things you would never say these days. So it was part of the daily grind. Yeah, I was a feminist. I, I, I think... All female journalists were were feminists at the time. We really believed that we had a right to do the same stories as men and to give them their due. All our peers thought the same.
5: Gail Jarvis was also a member of the small but growing female press corps of the mid-70s, working as a reporter for Channel 9.
7: Women in Australia were still very much the underclass in terms of professional activity. When I was at school, my options for a career were very much teaching and banking, people of my age were, you know, the first of a new generation coming through with a a changed attitude as to what we could do.
5: Though they didn't know it at the time, the ageing crooner with a thin veneer of confidence was about to face off against the new clique of ambitious Australian female journalists.
4: Part Two. A Chase. A Concert. A Clash.
5: July 1974 and Sinatra's private jet, borrowed from a casino in Vegas, finally touched down in Sydney. His hefty entourage included lawyer Mickey Rudin, along with a collection of bodyguards, musicians and assistants. Concert producer Robert Raymond was there to meet them.
3: Frank and everybody and myself were standing on the curb waiting for the cars. The first one was a white Rolls-Royce and then there were nine white Mercedes behind it and they came in sort of like a royal procession (laughs) and I remember Frank turning to me and saying, now that's
1: class.
5: (laughs) Later that day, Sinatra flew on to Melbourne for the first concert. Knowing that there would be no chance of getting an interview, Gail Jarvis found another way to get a story. She dressed up to look like Sinatra's then girlfriend, Barbara Marks, who had come to Australia with Frank. Gail and her cameraman hired a limo and waited outside the airport. They were hoping to break into the stars' cavalcade.
7: I was in the back dressed in this hideous old rabbit fur that I'd borrowed from one of the production assistants and a blonde wig.
5: As Sinatra's car pulled off the tarmac, Channel 9's gamble paid off. Security waved Gail's limo in behind the stars and now the two vehicles were sandwiched inside a police escort just metres apart.
7: Sinatra, as we were heading down the highway, turned around and realised that there was actually a cameraman in the car behind him. It was a look of total annoyance. I mean, we were rattled. We, didn't quite, we weren't expecting any of this to, to unfold the way it was. So we were seriously amused by the whole thing.
5: Later that day, another camera crew followed Sinatra this time into the underground car park of his Melbourne hotel. The crew ended up being roughed up by Sinatra's bodyguards, as journalist David Hill recounted at the time.
8: It wasn't a kind of a push, it was a definite bang with his hand. Mike reeled back and then it was on for young and old. There was, I'd say, three or four guys jumped us and they're trying to, you know, bang the camera around. Mike lost hold of the camera and dropped it. never seen an attack like this on a television crew.
5: Having endured these encounters with a determined and exuberant Australian press, Sinatra was now ready to perform to a sold out crowd at Melbourne's Festival Hall. That atmosphere was quite extraordinary.
3: I'm getting goosebumps again as I relive it, telling you this story. The audience was just rapt to see him in the flesh. I was told that in the concert, He was going to take a break in that break. He was going to do a monologue and tell a few jokes
5: Angry at life and now angry at the Australian press Sinatra did more than tell a few jokes
2: We've been having a marvelous time being chased around the country for the three days. (laughs) We gotta run all day long because of the parasites who chase us with automobiles and it's dangerous too on the road, you know, cause an accident, they won't quit. They wonder why I won't talk to them. I wouldn't drink their water, let alone not talk to them. (laughs) It's the scandal man that really bugs you, drives you crazy. It's two bit type work that they do. They're pimps. They're just crazy, you know, and the hookers. The broads who work in the press are the hookers of the press. Need I explain that to you? I might offer them a buck and a half. I'm not sure. I once gave a chick in Washington $2 and I overpaid her, I found out. She didn't even bathe. Imagine what that was like. (laughs) Most of them don't anyway.
5: What an ego. Now. ABC radio journalist Margot Marshall.
4: I just thought he was crude and rude and... A pox on him. Those that I talked to about it just said, what a pig.
2: Never did a hard day's work in their life.
4: For one thing, what an irony for a man of with his reputation to be having a go at women for just doing a, their job. Oh, boy, they're murder... I certainly wasn't offended. I thought he was just having a diatribe and he was on a real ego trip. Yeah, I object to being called a hooker because I'm doing my job, but I certainly didn't believe that anyone in the public would really take him seriously. It was something we just shrugged off, really, I think. It was rude and it was objectionable, but so what? I say they're bums
5: and they're always going to be
4: bums, every one of them.
5: Channel 9 reporter Gail Jarvis. I think most of them are a bunch
2: of fags anyway.
7: I took no offense whatsoever to what he said. He was a dinosaur to people of my generation. He was very much the artist that appealed to my parents. So for him to be mocking us and to be mocking Australians and to be mocking journalists was was fairly irrelevant. What do you mean you won't stand still while I take your picture? They're God, all of a
4: sudden they're God. I think it was our job to try and get a story from
2: him. And if any of you folks in the press or in the audience, please quote me properly, don't mix it up. Do it exactly as I'm saying it, please.
4: You sound as though you're coming to Australia as a favour to have a concert. Well, the public are paying for the tickets and you should expect to be treated just as we would treat any other Australian star. There's nothing particularly special about you. Well, I think that that was our attitude. And when, when he got more and more egotistic, we. I suppose our backs got up and we thought, we're not putting up with this. That'll keep them talking to themselves for a while.
5: (laughs) Before the concert, Sinatra and the press had squared off against each other. But after the singer's venomous spray on stage, the two were about to go toe to toe.
8: Part 3. From minor to major to siege.
3: I was woken up at half past seven by the owner of the festival hall in Melbourne and he said, Robert, you're not going to have a show tonight.
6: As we go to air, it seems that Frank Sinatra's concert tour of Australia began and ended with last night's performance in Melbourne.
7: You know, here was an opportunity for the union movement to show their power. It got totally out of hand.
6: Sinatra's remarks in Melbourne about journalists, particularly women journalists, and the alleged roughing up of photographers were the last straw as far as some unions were concerned. They want an apology or his black band.
7: It was one of those snowballing things where people jumped on the bandwagon. It was exciting, for goodness sake.
4: I was just told to get out and get a story and don't come back without one.
6: Margot Marshall has just come back to our Melbourne studios from Mr. Sinatra's hotel.
4: Representatives of the Musicians' Union, the Theatrical Employees' Union and the AJA are meeting with Mr. Sinatra and Mr. Sinatra's promoters.
5: We asked that apologies be forthcoming from Mr. Sinatra, firstly, for the actions... And they
3: were very determined they were going to stop the rest of the tour. He apologised publicly to the ladies of the Australian press for the remarks he made about them. Now, that's really the moment for me. You know the shit really hit the fan and i i didn't really know what to do
8: you won't do apologize under what any for?
6: for what mr sinatra's attorney mr milton rudin
3: i know but an apology for what
6: i
4: put to you a few minutes ago a number of women reporters and i went up to the 15th floor well i knocked on the door and sinatra came to the door with a couple of what appeared to me mafia bodyguards with him. And this is the reception we got from Mr Sinatra's bodyguards. I'll take a walk, let's take a walk. And they lifted me up under the armpits and carried me to the lift. And actually delivered into the hands of the media. It was great.
6: <laughs> it's understood, however, that Mr. Sinatra himself wants an apology from the Australian press. Unless within 15 minutes Mr. Sinatra
5: had an apology from the Australian press for what he termed 15 years of, if you'll pardon the expression, shit, he would be leaving the country within the hour.
6: Then again, perhaps it's not bye bye, Frankie. transport workers' unions put a ban on the refuelling of his private jet and a ban on any
3: other aircraft he may board until he apologises to the unions involved. One or two graziers rang me up and said, you could get Sinatra to land at our private airstrip and we can fill up the plane and then they can fly off to New Zealand. (laughs) Things like that happened. In London, the story appeared under one headline, Old Blue Eyes is Blacked. This media fracas, was not a storm in a teacup, this was a storm, period.
0: You don't get invited to somebody's house for dinner and spit in the soup. Frank was invited to Australia to perform and he spat in the soup. He felt, he being Frank Sinatra, was invulnerable, that he could do whatever he wanted, he could say whatever he wanted, and Australia showed him otherwise. And it
4: (laughs) it was a beautiful moment. Probably a very Australian reaction. We've always brought down tall poppies in Australia, haven't we?
5: The second and final Melbourne show was cancelled, but some Sinatra fans turned up to Festival Hall anyway, only to be greeted by a recorded message. If it wasn't for the transport workers' union ban, Sinatra would have been long gone from Australia. Instead, his entourage flew back to their Sydney HQ, the luxury Boulevard Hotel.
8: I met him in the foyer of the hotel, and he said, John, I'm cooking spaghetti and salad in your magnificent kitchen. Why don't you join us for dinner? With Frank being the chef. John
5: Pond was the PR manager at the Boulevard Hotel. He was in charge of giving Sinatra the treatment that he was used to, but with the crooner now grounded and under siege, his entourage appealed to John for help.
8: I was in the middle of spaghetti and the phone rang, oh, it's for John Pond, it's the Prime Minister. Well, were they impressed? I must admit, they really were. My shares, I guess, went up 400% at that stage. That the Prime Minister of Australia would ring me (laughs) while I'm having dinner with Frank Sinatra. And I'm talking to Gough Whitlam, our Prime Minister, on the telephone. He said, there's only one man that can solve this for you.
6: The president of the ACTU, Mr Bob Hawke. It was Bob Hawke. Mr Bob Hawke.
3: President Hawke of the ACTU. And so Hawke had inserted himself well into this whole thing. Union's concern and Frank Sinatra wished to see the situation amicably resolved.
5: Sensing the opportunity for a PR win for the unions, Bob Hawke flew to Sydney to try and broker a truce. Concert producer Robert Raymond took the ACTU chief up to the presidential suite to meet with Sinatra and the star's lawyer, Mickey Rudin. And I noticed that the
3: dining table, which was almost below the entrance to the suite had on it a bottle of Cavoisier and a box of cigars. That's it, no papers or anything. And Frank made a disparaging remark towards Bob, and that was enough. Mickey said, look, I'll call you, (laughs)
4: leave
3: us. So I left and went down to my uh, suite at the other end of the hall and uh,
5: waited. Not wanting to miss out on the action, or the scotch, champagne and chicken sandwiches, 15 union representatives had also converged at the hotel to be a part of the negotiations.
8: And every time they came up with a document, they'd come down to us maybe each half hour or so, and say, what do you think of this? And the unions would go, nah, not strong enough. In the end, Mr. Hawke whispered in my ear and said, let's get this thing an end john do what you can your end i'd said to them look if we can solve this in the next 15 20 minutes we can have a concert on saturday i'd like to invite all you guys to the concert with your partners and i'll i'll be able to uh, organize accommodation with our compliments they came into the room They read the statement. One person said, no, that's not good enough. Everyone else says, shut up. And (laughs) that was the statement. All was solved. That was it. There was a concert the next night.
5: The summit between the unions and Sinatra's lawyer, Mickey Rudin, had gone long into the night. And those talks had taken their toll on Bob Hawke. Concert producer, Robert Raymond. So, of course, the sense of
3: relief was unbelievable. Mickey knew how to get to Bob Hawke, that bottle of cravoisier. He was half pissed, I think he'd have to admit that. I mean, he was
5: almost legless, to be honest. The deal was done. Now, it was time to talk to the waiting press. Frank Sinatra did
3: not intend any general reflection upon the moral character of working members of the Australian media. With this statement it is the desire of all concerned that the Australian people can now enjoy the fulfilment of the remainder of Frank Sinatra's schedule program in this country.
7: Part 4 The Coda and the
1: Crossroads.
5: Sinatra's tour was back on. All the Sydney concerts went ahead as planned. One was even televised as a gesture to fans who'd missed out in Melbourne. Sinatra performed to his adoring audiences, but outside the concert halls, the world had seen the star's ugly side. Sinatra biographer, James Kaplan:
0: Genius is a strange quantity, and Frank was a strange quantity. He was a thug, he was an angel. With Sinatra, The angel is never far away when the thug is out, and the thug is never far away when the angel is out.
5: Concert producer Robert Raymond had worked closely with Sinatra and seen that angelic side. After the concert, Frank personally went to the orchestra and
3: gave them all an individual present. And there wasn't anything that I'm aware of that was duplicated. Every single person got something from Frank as a thank you gift
5: Robert Raymond went on to work with Sinatra on the European leg of the Stars comeback tour. You know, you really couldn't have had a better experience professionally
3: than working with somebody like Frank Sinatra and being given that opportunity. You sort of pinch
5: yourself a couple of times when you wake up in the morning to make sure that it's really happening. The events of July 1974 in Australia also changed the course of John Pond's
8: life. Sinatra called me up to his suite and said, John, we couldn't have done all this without you. I'd like to say thank you. We'd like to take you back to America with us for a bit of a holiday and and express our thanks. So I flew back on the Sinatra jet. I spent about three or four weeks in casinos in Nevada. Some months later, I was offered an executive position in the casino business. People either love him or hate him but I only found him to be a gentleman.
0: His feathers were ruffled while he was in Australia, but the minute he got back to the States, his feet were being kissed again by everybody in sight.
2: Old Blue Eyes is back. Or as they say in Australia, Old Big Mouth is back.
0: And when you look at his concert schedule for 1974, the comeback was only gathering power. And so I don't think that this Australian, this unhappy Australian interlude would have loomed large in his rear view mirror.
1: The Siege of Sinatra was written and produced by James Viber. The sound engineer was Tim Simons. contemporary jazz faculty at the Australian National University who played the music in this program. John Mackey on tenor saxophone, Greg Stott on guitar, Hugh Barrett on piano, Brendan Clark on bass, and Mark Sutton on the drums. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Join me for another deep dive into the past next time on The History Listen.